0: This is CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to the opinion booth. My name is Sonia Booth and my guest today has a very interesting uh, description on what she does, different uh, titles on what she stands for and what she's all about. Um, but you'll get the gist of all her many different hats as the interview goes. Her name is Lauren Jacobs. Welcome to the Opinion Booth.
1: Thank you so much, Sonia. It's really actually very good to be with you
0: today. It's only my pleasure to have you here.
1: (laughs) Especially all the way in Johannesburg. (laughs) (laughs) Why such a strong British accent? Really? Apparently people say that about me all the time. And whenever I go overseas, they say, are you from, are you from England? (laughs) And I'm not. My, um, my great grandmother was British, but I have no idea. Uh, Maybe it's a Cape Town thing. (laughs) Mm, No. I don't know. My husband's
0: from Cape Town. Really? And
1: And he doesn't sound like that? (laughs) He's half
0: half British and he sounds nothing like Like me. (laughs) Like me?
1: Yeah. Maybe it's something in the genes. (laughs)
0: Do you you aspire for that life? Like, you know, royalty, like (laughs) to live with the queen or visit her or have a cup, a cup of tea with her?
1: No, I I don't actually follow the royals at all. I couldn't tell you what's going on in their lives. I know that it's a big thing that people do these days, you know, follow the wedding, the royal wedding. I don't. Is it? Oh,
0: hi. In f- fact, I think they are such a waste of taxpayers' money. Anyway, moving I agree,
1: along. I agree with you. A uh, high five. It's. it's... I'm going
0: to make a lot of enemies from this, <laughs> oh, but, I, no. but I don't <laughs> care. I don't care. I don't
1: care either. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know how old they are. I'm not sure what's up in their lives. And... Because life is being lived, and I'm living my life, mm. and I think that it's unnecessary for me to be focusing on their lives. No, I got
0: better things to do with yeah, my time absolutely. and energy. Yeah.
1: So now, your new book is titled.
0: Uh, you need to pronounce that for me. Shillemzain. Is that That's how you? That's it. Well oh, done. So I've got Good. the pronouncing right. So it's about the Queen of Israel, right? That's it. So now, what inspired and motivated the drafting of the actual manuscript?
1: Wow, that's a big thing. So this book is basically historical fiction, so um, it's based about 2,000 years ago, so it's basically a history piece made into a novel format. What inspired that for me is I've been working for a very long time in gender equality within theology. Now, that's quite a big thing, and it's different, and I... I really, wa- I, oh man, what a long story, but I've met so many people we know in faith communities, especially there is a lot of still women can't be leaders, women can't be on the forefront of certain things and can't be in certain positions. And what inspired this book was really a desire when I met That there was, okay, there was a queen of Israel, a physical queen of Israel 2,000 years ago. And in the history, even if you read the Bible, you see all these kings. So there's all these male figures. You don't see any of these strong female figures. So when I met this lady on the pages of a history book, I knew I needed to bring her to life. And I wanted to do that so that I could show that women could be leaders. And not just, uh, you know, of... If we're going to talk about the church, we're going to say children's church or there, you know, uh, it's great for women to work with children. That's great. But women can be leaders in any capacity. And that was really what I wanted to show in the story because this is a true story. It's a really true story. And I wanted to show that we need to start opening up that conversation and we need to start making more space for women to be in those leadership roles, especially within our faith communities. In the world, we're working at it, you know, CEOs and, you know, fortune 500 companies and businesses, there's things that's happening and women, it's slow, but women are getting to the front, but it's our faith communities that really need to change because that's happening way too slowly.
0: So she was a woman of substance. She wasn't, uh, you know, the kind of royalty that just lives for the glitz and the glamour and the high tees and the charity balls and uh, the polo events and attending kids' children's homes wearing stilettos and a crisp uh, white dress, crisp white shirt, and whereby she can't even interact with, you know, those, you know, uh, children who are in foster homes or, you know. Exactly.
1: And... The whole thing when I met her, exactly like you said, what astounded me about her was that her husband was actually the king and because it was a very male-dominated society and the lineage came through that way. She wasn't supposed to be queen and they had two male sons, but the people were drawn to her and they were drawn to her because one, her husband was an abusive man and he literally would slaughter hundreds and hundreds of people on a weekly basis and she would hide people. She would hide religious leaders that she was close to. She would hide family and children and she would she was literally between the people and her husband so she was really intensely strong and she made a lot of political decisions that were considered wrong or bad in his side and in his cabinet side but she did it anyway and on his deathbed while he was lying there dying she was about 63 years old at the time that's a mature woman he recognized that the people loved her and that she gave them hope and so he left and he said that He left this crown to her and said that you must be queen. And, you know, their children weren't very happy about it because two male sons, one of them are definitely going to take up the throne. Mommy gets left the throne and she's 63 and she's the first legitimate woman in the history of this nation to ever get that throne. And she rules for seven years over a period called the Golden Age of Israel. And it becomes a, a time of peace and prosperity. And there is so much good that starts happening and exactly like you're saying, she's not walking around trying to be higher than everybody, or ah, oh, just not being herself. And for,
0: and for for people to curtsy, right? Yeah,
1: it's kind of like she's out there doing the hard work, doing hard things. She started building schools where, in those times, where little boys and little girls could get educated together. That's historical fact, and that wasn't done before. You know that that kind of synagogue setting was where where the little boys would go, and she opened up places where there were. Little boys and little girls getting educated. And that speaks to me because female education right now in our world is something that we're still dealing with to try and change, especially yeah. getting our little girls educated and in many different countries and nations. So I see that in her, how relative her life is to our lives today. And tell me, she, I mean, she, she led uh, her people
0: during war. Mm. What do you think her opinion would be where Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un are concerned?
1: Oh, that is such an interesting question. One of the things I need to say about Chelem Zion... The woman, the queen, was that her reign was also great because of the other women that were leading around her, and that's a huge key point. Because at the time, uh, Cleopatra Selene was ruling really Egypt, and they were actually best friends. So, so you have these these women, these queens that are women of substance, and they are leading strong nations together, and they're forming alliances, and their armies sometimes work together, and they they sort of help each other out. So, I'm wondering what she would really think about this connection. I think that. I think that leaders for all they are, be they, them good or, or bad, however we see them, I think they know the how can I say the positivity or the need should I say for strong political connections especially in times of war and in times where you have so many key players I think for her and that's a part that comes through in my book as well her son goes and with a mission she gives him a mission to go and connect some people that are very key players together so that she can ensure safety for her nation so I think that what it comes down to is ensuring safety for her people I think that she would probably see it as if it's necessary to safeguard a nation, then she would probably do it. And I think that is because she saw that that was the need in her time. So there were key players and she tried to connect them so that alliances were there in case there was anything bad that went down.
0: You speak of the need to share Women's stories and to safeguard women's mm-hmm. voices. And I, I think that's the narrative that you're getting in abundance, mm-hmm. um, you know, on social media, TV, whatever. As a TED speaker, what is your opinion on the Kenyan gender bill?
1: Explain that a little bit more to me, because that's a very, very interesting question, but I would love to hear a little tiny little bit before I answer what Sonia <laughs> it, Booth it, thinks because this really, is the opinion
0: booth <laughs> it's it's really just about um what do you call it um what do you call it representation mm. not only in parliament in assembly. Calling for more women to have a voice, which is what you stand for, um, for more women's opinions to be counted and taken seriously mm. in a nutshell. That's what it's all about. And it was actually trending on Twitter a couple of days ago because yes. they had to sign off on that.
1: I love what you said, and that's why I kind of wanted to hear back from you. This week, I I took a bit of flack. I did a photo shoot. This is bizarre, right? I did a photo shoot recently, and I was wearing a T-shirt that said, The future is female. Well... I mean, we all love that T-shirt, right? I mean, We we love- do, but as a mother of two boys,
0: yeah, um, my I, boys are left out, but that's a, that's a topic for another day. It yeah. is,
1: it is. But I took a bit of flack uh, um, from some um, religious people. Uh, what are you saying? Are you excluding men, whatever? And then one of the feedback that I had that someone said to me was, uh, well, this person was living in the U.S. Uh, and we know that there's a lot of things happening in the politics of the U.S. right now. And they said to me, well, there's a lot of women that are rising up in the political arena arena in the states and um these are bad women because they're doing bad things and my question to that person was exactly what you said firstly i think that women need more representation and inclusion uh, that was part of my TED talk actually that i did last weekend and it's about the fact that we are so quick to say that woman, for example, there it was said, women are rising up and they don't stand, and they don't stand for good things. So these are bad women. However, the political arena in, in most nations has been run by men. Do we ever stand up and say, well, that's a, a, that's a male guy and he stands for bad things? No, we don't. But as soon as it's a woman in politics and maybe we don't agree with her agenda, the first thing we point at is, well, that's a woman and that woman is standing for bad things, and I, I kind of put this, this out there and said, women need to be included. Yes, maybe she doesn't stand for the things that you agree with in the in a, in p- the political arena, but we need more representation. So in Africa, in Kenya, I know in Ethiopia as well, there are these changes, and just because these individuals that are rising up maybe their viewpoint or their politics isn't the same as yours doesn't mean that women shouldn't still be included because the representation needs to change. Women need to be included and they need to be represented. And it just is because they've been excluded for so long and underrepresented. So I think that, that in talking with this individual that I was talking to, was actually a woman that was having this conversation with me. She walked away saying, I've never thought of it like that before. And I say that we quick to point out and say, well, that's a bad woman. She's she's bad in politics. Men have been running it all the time, and we obviously have a problem, right? But we never point and go like, well, that's a bad man. <laughs> he mm-hmm. has bad politics. We'll just say that's a bad politician or I don't agree with that guy or whatever. But why is it that when a woman is in the political arena or, or gets higher up, the first thing we point at is the gender. Why?
0: Mm. Okay, that's that's a that's a you know it's an interesting angle to 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 bring to the table. Mm. So now you studied criminology, mm-hmm. and you also have a master's degree in divinity, divinity, yes, divinity. Is that how you say it? Yes. English, English is not my mother's tongue. But you my, my the tongue of my mother, as they call it. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even know such existed. I okay. mean, what, what does it entail, Festival? And uh, what does that qualify you to do as in scope of work or field?
1: So what I did was um, I studied my, my BA. I did it in English and psychology. That was the first thing that I did when I was just fresh out of, you know, school. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a journalist. And I went into that and then realized I really liked psychology. And obviously I had the two majors. And then I went into criminology because at the time I was actually working with victims of crime. At a non profit charity, as a counsellor uh, in Cape Town, and I was working with people that were affected by crime and people that were affected by trauma. And what happened when I was working with these individuals, different individuals, we worked with everything from rape to resuscitation to women that had miscarried, ca- carried anybody that was struggling with trauma and just anything like that. I worked with the police and in the hospitals. And while I was doing that, I got very interested in victimology. So that's kind of like the study of how to help victims. And at the time, UNISA was offering criminology. And in criminology, you would learn how to work with victims affected by crime. And you would also then profile offenders, which... Was great, you know. I was like, yes, we're gonna nail down those offenders, you know. And I started to do criminology, and in that, I realized that that actually wasn't really what I wanted to do. Just because I was working with people that were affected by trauma and crime. Didn't mean that that was what I wanted to do. And at, I actually married, I met my husband when he was a pastor. So I married a pastor and, um, which is very interesting because I have a Jewish father and, and a Christian mom. So I've merged the best of two worlds and met this, this mm. Christian dude. My parents are like, that's cool, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, I, and then I just, I made the jump. I was very drawn to. I saw the way that women were treated. And I, when I read the Bible, I don't read it through a male-dominated narrative. I see, I see a lot of female in it. And I realized that I wanted to have – I started getting asked to go speak in a lot of places like church groups and then synagogue groups and then Jewish groups and all these different places wanted me to start talking about things that I discovered in the Bible. And I realized that education is important. For Absolutely. me, education is so important. So, I said to myself, "Yes, I will go, and I will you know pursue theology because I found that that would really help me in what I wanted to do, and I did so I got my master's in divinity and and basically, what it is is a theological degree, and I studied the major that I did was biblical counseling therapy, so still how to counsel and help people from a spiritual perspective. But I actually wrote my thesis on the reality of abuse in the lives of South African women and what the church has done about it and investigated for two years, whether the church failed or whether the church succeeds in helping abused women. And I just, I counseled abused women for years and spent all my time doing that as a nonprofit counselor, because Abused women often come out with no money and they don't have the resources and they don't know where to go. So that I kind of knew, like you said early on, I had to wear many hats and I still wear many hats and to merge them all together and to be educated and to help myself understand um, that was why I did what I did
0: And I mean as someone who has worked for an NPO As a woman abuse counsellor for a crisis centre mm-hmm. And you were also a woman abuse campaign leader mm-hmm. um, 16 days of activism is recognised from 25 November till the 10th of December mm-hmm. In your opinion, is this sufficient to make a meaningful and lasting impact?
1: Oh, boy. <laughs> Can Cause, I cause answer you know, that we, we will
0: all, every year, run about that time. We will always have the conversation about whether 16 days is enough to shine mm. the light on the plight that, you know, and the mm. scourge that is women abused.
1: Exactly. Personally, if I can, I was just part of a campaign now where we did a whole thing for the 16 days of activism and I have to speak at this event where they're going to launch this whole thing. But I don't feel that it's sufficient. I really don't feel it's sufficient because we highlight it and then we have all these conversations that happen and we have, you know, people in government that talk about it. It's not enough because statistically what's still happening, even if we just take South Africa, I mean, let's not even go beyond our borders. We have a huge problem, domestic violence problem. And I remember every year I go and grab the newspaper whenever the crime statistics come out. Depressing. I grab it. And it's so depressing. And last time I did it, they were like, Oh, domestic violence statistics are down like nought point something percent. Well, we know as therapists and all of our NGO workers, all of our crisis centers know and understand that those statistics are not a representation of what's happening. True. Because a lot of people don't what? They don't report the crime sure. and they don't go to the police station because we have secondary victimization where we have this reality that happens where there's maybe you know a lot of things that happen in the police stations or a lot of things that happen we had to in the crisis center go with rape survivors through the district surgeon test i mean you accompany them to the hospital where they have to go to the district surgeon and then they have that physical examination you i mean you've just been raped and you have to lie naked. And remember, you're not supposed to shower or wash yourself. Mm. And that is important. We need to say that because there has to be evidence. True. Okay, so, so you know, don't do that. And we used to have brown paper bags. Do not put your clothes that you're wearing. If you've taken your clothes off and you were raped, don't put it in a plastic bag because the specimen and everything gets yeah. right off. Put it in a brown paper bag. So we used to carry brown paper bags around as counselors. And we would put the clothes in there and we would go with these survivors through that test and you know you got that form where they're marking off parts of your body it is a traumatic experience and a lot of people do not want to go through that experience and I don't blame them for that and then it's the court process and then it's all of that so we know that statistically we don't actually know what truth is when with regards to domestic violence but if we think about it if I just think about myself I don't know how it is for you I don't know how many, you know, friends or what your tribe is like or your sisterhood is like, but a lot of my friends are survivors of rape. And I'm sure that that's how we see it and that's how we experience it. So statistically, it's not merging up with what is the physical reality that we know and understand as women. I still have conversations with people that I meet just last week. Why do we as a woman, we were having a coffee and it was a whole bunch of new girls and we were talking and eventually rape as a topic came up. And where we actually looked at each other during the conversation and we said, are you afraid of being raped? And it was a very, it became a very deep, meaningful conversation. We had women that were there in their 60s, in their 40s, in their 30s, in their 20s. Why are we still having that conversation? Mm -hmm. We as women are sitting around a table eating our carrot cake and drinking our lattes. And we are talking about, are you afraid of being raped? Are you afraid of being abused? We are having those conversations. So I do not think that the 16 days, I do not think that it's enough. I think that we need a drastic change within our own society and within our own nation, not even beyond the borders of South Africa. We need serious change. We have great laws. We have some of the greatest domestic violence laws in the world. They are there. We have them in place, but it's implementation and we need implementation and we need the people that are going to implement it as well from grassroots level to be trained enough to help us implement that. To answer your question, given the stats,
0: every woman knows at least one other woman that's been abused in mm. one way or another, financial abuse, emotional mm. abuse, physical abuse, even if you only have a closed circuit uh, of, of friends or sisterhood, as mm. you call them, even if you're very close with three people, mm. chances are one of you amongst the three of you. One of you is connected somehow to another woman Mm. who is suffering a form of abuse because the stats as, 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 as much as they're not representing the entire population of females in this country, Mm. the stats are so shockingly high that every woman out there Mm. knows of or knows about a woman that has suffered some form of abuse Exactly. That's my story and I'm sticking to it It's
1: true though because I remember when I was I was working at um, Clinic, and I was doing some training There, English training I actually have an English teacher by the way Maybe that's from oh, my British accent right. from no, it makes it's, sense. A, it's a TFL this, this, this is all coming together now, <laughs> the puzzle yeah. That's right, so I had to do training And I was talking to some of the people that were Working at Clinic, some of the nurses And they were saying um I was telling them about my research at the time for my master's degree, how I'm going to research woman abuse and, and all this kind of thing. And the one lady looked at me and said, well, where are you going to find these women to tell you their stories? I mean, where are you going to find these survivors or these victims, you know? And I was like, lady, where are you living? Like under a rock. But at that moment, I felt that it was necessary to be vulnerable in that moment and to look at her in the eye and say, well, I'm a survivor. So, it's not that far away. I'm a survivor of Staring abuse. Staring at you right in yeah. the face. Because I grew up in an abusive home as a child. My home, uh, my father was emotionally and verbally abusive, but it's, it's, we downplay verbal and emotional abuse. It is like being beaten up from the inside out. And I mean, the one time my father did hit me, I had a blood mouth. So that was the intent. It was a very intense home life. I grew up in a very, very, wealthy family and that was a point that I needed to make to a lot of people as well because some people have said to me well abuse doesn't happen in white people's mm-hmm. homes I've heard people say that in affluent yeah. suburbs. and yeah. you know you guys have money so you don't have I was like my parents told me not to tell anybody what was going on because that is that is that is the white people that is white people we like don't tell anybody shh, you know we've we 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 got we, we've got this, we've got that, we've got that. Don't let anybody see that it's actually just nonsense. It's actually just a mask that we're all hiding behind. And, you know, I went through my healing. I am totally healed from what happened, and I have a really great relationship with my father today. And I've been able to go to him and say to him, why did you do the things you did? Why? My father never, ever to- said, I love you, until I was 26 years old and in hospital. Sure. Uh, for some operation that I had to, to go for and I was married and my father phoned me and he was worried about my operation and he, he actually said, I love you. And I got to ask him a lot of questions. Why? You know, and today we are so reconciled and, and that is what I also want to say that there, there can be healing and there can be reconciliation. It wasn't about going, Hey dad, everything you did was fine with me because it's not. But it was going to him and saying, Dad, why did you do this? Why did you never tell me you loved me? Instead, you bought me things. And then realizing that that was how he understood it. I thought that I was showing you love by giving you the best that I could. And a lot of people think that. And he, he answered a lot of my questions and he was deeply grieved for a lot of what happened. And today we get on very well. I mean, sending by the airport, my dad will always message me and say, do you have money? Can I send you money? Hey, uh, can I send you money? Uh, don't you want to go and buy yourself something? Hey, uh, my father's always looking out for me and I'm 34 and he's, he's now, he's now become father. You know what I mean? I didn't have a father for most of my life. I felt abandoned and now he's a father to me. And, I'm so, I have peace. I have a deep peace inside of me, but it came through many years of very, very deep (laughs) counseling and going into myself and unpacking and ridding myself of that voice. My father was always that voice because growing up in, you know, in that home, he always said to me, you're going to be a failure. You're going to amount to nothing. And that was what I heard. So I had to rid myself of that voice as well. And that took most of my life. And I've met a lot of women that have that as well, don't feel that they are enough or feel like they're going to fail. And I realize that oftentimes you can narrow it down to the father and things that you heard when you were a child. Sometimes even your mom, things that your mom said that you won't be good enough or you're just a failure, you know, or you won't amount to anything or you're no good or you were a mistake. That's a big one.
0: Does he know how to love you the way you want to be loved now?
1: He asked me actually, how did I want him to, to love me? And I said that I, it was a really weird question for me because I said to him that I felt that I didn't need him to be like that anymore because I'm married and I have such a great husband who kind of just gives me so much love that my love tank is just full. <laughs> so I was like, dad, you know, you can, you can just, uh, be there for me and just when we visit, you know, let's talk, you know, I just want you to be present. Yeah. I just want you to be present in Emotionally my life. Now. Yeah. yeah. You don't Engaging. have to actually do anything for me now because I'm kind of older now. I kind of feel like eventually I'll probably be taking care of them. Mm. And I, I kind of say to him, I just want you to be present. I really just want you to be present with me. And he is. And now he's like super supportive, you know, and he will live stream. When I did my TED talk, he live streamed it. You know, he was like the first one in the family, like on this huge TV at home, you know, like we're going to live stream because I said to my family, please don't come to TED. It's a very intense stage and I'm nervous. Don't come, you know, just stay at home. And he was like, I'm going to live stream this thing, you know. And he said to my mom actually that, uh, and that was a huge thing for me. He actually said to my mom, I see now how life is, and I see that, that we're moving into this change where where women should be treated equal. And he's had this shift through looking at my life and just seeing things in my life. There's There's been changes in him. And so sometimes it wasn't about what I said to him. It was how I lived and how I continue to live. And now he's thinking a lot about a lot of important things. So there's a change in him, and, and it's good. It's really good. So. We we cool today. <laughs> we cool. I'm, I'm glad for for his for his
0: sake. Yeah, because you know? often it 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 gets to a point where it's 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 too late. Like the person just has like one foot um in exactly. the in the grave, and and now they're realizing that oops, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to be dying soon. And they try and make amends, but it's it's too late because it's there's just late. not enough time mm-hmm. for um what do you call it um deep conversations mm. and like you said in your case you had a lot of questions as to why did you do mm. this and that and that now tell me um the your role in the documentary that you did about women abuse mm. um, how did that come about
1: so yes it was for the south african faith and family institute and um, that documentary i worked as a researcher for them for for safi uh, for a while, uh, interestingly enough, I was commissioned to write about white women's experiences of domestic violence. <laughs> That's interesting, right? I'm like, it's no different to to anybody to, else. We're yeah. we're all akin, yeah. you know. Yeah. We're we're sis- we're a sisterhood, you know. But it was interesting because there was a a kind of a series that they were doing at that time of, you know, uh, coloured women's experiences, black women's experiences, white women's experience. Affluent Women's Experience. So they kind of commissioned me to do this research, Safi. And I said, yeah, sure, you know. And I did it. And uh, that was great. And then they started commissioning me for more things and saying, please research this and please research that. And at the time, I was very deeply involved in research. Research research about domestic violence and visiting safe houses and shelters and saying what is actually going on in our shelters and our safe houses. So I got involved with that. And my husband and I were actually both ordained as pastors uh, in the same year, which was quite many years ago. And so Safi asked me if I would come in like almost a pastoral role as a religious leader speaking on domestic violence. How I have found domestic violence to be. And obviously at the time I was doing my master's research in, you know, woman abuse and the church. So that was how it kind of came about. And there was a lot of questions that got asked in a documentary. We never prepared for the documentary. It was kind of like I went in, (laughs) I sat down and they like fired these questions at me while they were filming. And I had to answer them very truthfully and unprepared. Kind of like how we're doing it today. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when the person sitting opposite you has a similar understanding and a similar mindset on similar things, it, it happens. So that was really great. Being part of that documentary, they actually use that documentary to train up leaders in different faith communities, Hindus, Buddhists, um, Christians, Jewish people, anybody. They use that documentary to equip those leaders. And so we were making our voice known so that we could help others. And I think that that's what made it special for me. And speaking of faith,
0: I mean, your research and documenting uh, abuse within the Bible, that that was one of the areas that you focused on. Why that in particular? Because the Bible can be very controversial in as far as um, strong-willed women are concerned. Mm.
1: Absolutely. What I've actually discovered is that I believe, oh, I think if we look at it statistically again, we'll find that only 1.4% of the entire biblical narrative has women's uh, voices in it. So women only speak for 1.4%. That's nothing, right?
0: Women so, are not supposed so, to speak, So remember? when they do
1: speak, yeah. So when they do speak, we have to kind of pay attention. You know, so I kind of devoted the last decade of my life to listening to women speaking in the Bible. So when they do speak, I take it upon myself to listen because therein, I think, lies a deeper story. And I think that what people need to realize and what I came to peace with very long ago was that it wasn't in the interests of, of the scribes who were of a select group and a select, obviously, understanding and of a select group of people at the time it wasn't in their interest to document women's stories and for me that that doesn't mean uh, it doesn't mean that god how i understand him doesn't like a woman it meant that those and this this probably people will be like so what are you really saying i'm saying go and do some research right <laughs> i'm saying that it wasn't in the interest of the people that were writing the things down to document women's stories. What I see today, though, is that I believe why I why I stand up for gender equality and why it's part of my story is not because of how I grew up. Because a lot of people said, oh, yeah, you want to do this because you had this abusive father. Well, no, I didn't feel this way growing up. I didn't – I wasn't like, yes, going to be this, you know, person – it came about as a art, like almost like a root of my faith. The more that I've grown in my faith and in my spiritual walk and my understanding is the more that I feel commissioned to do what I need to do in a spiritual way. I believe, and that means that sometimes I'm a disruptor. All right. And I don't mind being a disruptor because I have people asking me all the time, religious people like, so what are you saying? Or I am deeply for being completely Uh, you know, biblically sound, be biblically sound, interpret the Bible and live a, you've got to live a certain way. And and I'm big about that, but I'm not big about theology that we hold onto that came from the dark ages, because there are certain kinds of theology that we hold onto. That was created by people, was created by men or women. I don't know, but mostly men and was handed down. So people, even, even people took the Bible and said, well, we chosen, and those people, because they look different, or they're from a different place, well, they're not. And that was a theology that you just created. you know oh, those people over there, well, they look different from us, so. And then it was used to create all these you know disunified groups. And I just feel that you know women, women matter and women's a- lives matter absolutely. women's stories
0: matter absolutely now back in twenty ten uh you and your husband wrote a book addressing the misunderstood passages of scripture <laughs> relating to women in particularly
1: in the New testament. Yes, how was it received? it was really received well i didn't know how the, how it would go down because we did it very low key. My husband is very very much a uh uh egalitarian you know very much a pro pro woman and he gets so mad he gets more mad than i do when people are like oh sit down you woman sit down you know and my husband is always on the forefront of that and he teaches with that with that book actually what happened was we we were studying the bible very very deeply for a very long time and realizing that we would get a lot of people saying to us well it says here in the bible in this place that a woman must learn in all silence so we must obviously be quiet, right? And then there was this other scripture that said, well, women can't be teachers. So why is your wife teaching, right? And so we went into the Bible to discover that there's actually a context. It's like a lot of what's in the New Testament were letters that were written to certain places or answering questions. So we have one part of a letter. We don't even know what the other part was about. What what was the question? So we realized that there's actually a culture and a context to every single book of the Bible. And there, this is not a new field. There are so many scholars that are researching these things and writing phenomenal books about this very, very topic. And I think that we just part of, we just part of them. And so we decided for our kind of faith community, we would write this book. And it was a very scholarly book, so it wasn't just easy reading, but it was very well received. So we kind of released it first into our faith community and not expecting, you know, we weren't going to be like, okay, get a publisher, go huge, get it on the bookshelves. We kind of just wanted to give it to our faith community because that's where we were discovering that there was a problem. And once people could realize that there was a, a context It doesn't mean all women need to be silent or all women. It was that there was a specific problem in that congregation that the writer was addressing and why he was saying it was because there was a specific problem. So he was only saying to that specific problem, to that specific group at that specific time that those specific women needed to keep quiet because of the problem that was going on. So that was part of, that's just a tiny bit of the iceberg that we discovered when we started doing proper research. And now, People just take these these things out of me like it applies to everyone, all time, everywhere. And it doesn't. And it was very well received. We didn't know how it would be, but it was super well received. And I said to my husband the other day, We need to think about doing doing something like this on a proper scale. Because now as a as a published author, I have a publishing house. They always like, So Lauren, what are you doing next? And I'm like, I'm thinking about it. And I said to my husband, no, we need to think about this, but we also need to think about it as that he needs to start to tell his story mm. because he's a man and he teaches a lot at women's places where he'll say to them, "Stop being quiet because that's not what it means." And there's a freedom that comes when the, when people hear a man absolutely uncovering that it matters more.
0: And I am I always whenever these conversations of femicide uh, c- uh, come up, I always say, you know, for as long as men keep mm. quiet. About Mm. these issues, you know, because fact is the men are put in place. We, 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 we put them out there as the protectors, right? Mm. That's how we're brought up. Mm. So if they keep quiet and yet they are the perpetrators and as they call them the hashtag men are trash oh, yeah. for them to change that uh, perception mm. they need to stand up for us mm. i love your husband you've got a good man there keep, 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 keep <laughs> him keep him girlfriend yeah. keep him. <laughs> so now human trafficking is a major issue mm. to say the least you volunteered at a safe house and you've also mm. performed poetry at events about the scourge what is your opinion on the child bride Auction, which was posted on Facebook But more importantly The fact that this post existed For two weeks before they could Take it, take action and take it down
1: It's a crazy thing I, oh, You know child brides That's an issue that's really close to my heart That's why I get so like uh, About it because I recently posted something On Facebook against statistics I'm not like this huge statistics person But it seems to be coming up today About the fact that there are 144 million Child brides every here, come again. 144 million pe- wow, women, little girls, and someone commented back to me and said, "No, there's a mistake here," and I said, "Well, go and Google it," and they were like, "But it can't be." Wow. So I said, "So if there's millions of little girls that are being sold, what are we doing about it? And what are we saying?" And this person said to me, "I'm on your side. What can we do about it?" And I mean. Child brides are happening everywhere. It's happening in South Africa. People think, I oh, know it's only out there in India and it's only out there. It's happening here. And it's, it's upsetting that Facebook could take so long to sort that out. And, and I, uh, I mean, we can't now debate with Facebook, but why? Did it, I mean, was it reported? Did they, did they, were they slow on the uptake? What happened? It's, that's also just unacceptable. I think that we need to start a conversation about child brides as well because people do genuinely think that it's happening far away. And a lot of my friends in America even tell me that child brides is a reality in America. It happens because they don't have laws for it. There are child brides happening everywhere. We can't look there and be like, oh, that's a Western country, first world. They have everything together it's happening everywhere. and Why is it happening? And we need to re-educate ourselves. We have to talk about this problem because yes, like you said, human trafficking is huge. It is huge. And we have to address that topic. But similarly, we're going to need to start addressing other topics as well. And child brides is a topic the same as gender side in China or in India. These are huge topics. Same as FGM. That's another big, big topic. I mean, but I was reading some statistics about female genital mutilation just this week. And they said that they've done a survey through Africa and they've discovered that it's dropping hugely, which is a great thing. They're saying that that the stats in some parts of, of Africa were standing at 90% of these girls were having to go. Now they've gone back 15 to 20 years later and they're discovering that it's standing at 26%. So it's dropping dramatically. But the one thing that really impacted me when I was reading this article is that the researchers said the way to change FGM to stop it from happening is to address the mothers of these girls. And they said, it's the moms that are making their girls do this and go for these procedures. It's not just men. It's not just that these men are coming and, and you know, buying these girls or taking these child brides It's that the parents are willingly giving their children over and the education, we need that re-education to happen and say, women have value. Women have value and women need to be seen as valuable. Little girls need to be seen as valuable. That's It's that mindset of changing it. And my husband was telling me that he was reading about how girls are beaten up in Africa, how moms are beating the breasts of the, of their little girls because when they start developing breasts, the men start coming to take them as their wives. So in order to combat this woman, a lot of the moms are beating their daughters, some of them have been pouring hot water, boiling hot water, been, been beating them with bricks so that their breasts don't develop so that they won't be taking it. But that is that is not the answer because these girls are being terribly, terribly treated and they're going to hospital and they're getting infections and they're being scarred. So there there is a lot that we need to do.
0: Wow. Well, and you spoke about education being very important. Knowledge is key. And if you don't mm. know any better, you don't do better, do you? Exactly. I mean, I know you, you, you've had writings um, on the female ritual um, servitude in um, yes. Ghana, in particular, your trip, I think, in 2014. And you're also passionate about the gender side um, mm. in China.
1: And and I want to ask you, why China specifically? I'm not sure I think I you know I remember the very first day that I ever read an article about genocide in China and, and genocide is just basically the routine killing uh, of aborting or killing, murdering of baby girls because, you know, China had the one-child policy for yeah. a long time, which now has changed. It's not two children. Yeah. So you can have two children, but still, again, it's the mindset of that, that girls weren't valuable. So I remember I was just on the internet one day, I think it was 2013, and I stumbled across a documentary on gender in China, and I watched it. And something about it really shook me. Uh, I, I literally started to have a panic attack. Literally, as in physically, I, and I, I switched it off, and i said i don 't want anything to do with this uh, it 's too much for me. It just felt too much at the time, and you know secondary trauma is a very real thing when you expose yourself to realities like human trafficking, you as a person that 's watching or reading, you can get secondary trauma from what you 're exposed to, and I felt a little bit like that when I read about gendercide and when I read about the horrors of gendercide, which i wouldn 't even share but It was a few days later where I felt that for me, I really believe it was a spiritual reality for me. That I literally heard a voice saying to me that I need to look at this issue. I need to know the truth. And so I went back at it and I had great peace. And I got in touch with actually the director of that documentary. I don't even remember what the documentary was called. And him and I connected via email. We chatted about it. And I got in touch with an organization called All Girls Allowed. And they started to tell me about things. And I actually spoke to a lady who actually had been through it, who decided that she was going to give up her baby girl because she wasn't really worth much because she was a little girl and then met a family who said that they would adopt her little girl. She she can give – she mustn't do that, you know. And how her story changed dramatically after that. She did give up her child for adoption and just, just what she discovered through that and realizing that again, it's culture. Again, it's mindset. Again, you know, men were seen as valuable because they can work and bring an income for the family. They look after, you know, their parents, whereas girls go over to the husband's family. So they're not really worth much in a sense. And so, Genocide in China, I think was, is, remains a huge thing for me. I just have a passion for it. I wouldn't say it was ever conscious. I would say that it was something I, I am drawn to. And my husband and I don't have children. Uh, we don't want to have our own children. And we've been married for very long. But we always say that if we felt that it was necessary, we would Adopt a little girl from somewhere like China or even Vietnam or Nepal to give that child a better life because of what happens there. So I think our hearts are both very sensitive to, to what's happening there. And I don't really know why. Um, I think maybe sometimes it just is like that. I'm not yeah. sure really why. Yeah. No, I mean, the,
0: the reason I ask you is because, um, there, there's many countries out there where girls are not mm. valued. You know, you, a, a boy child is held on a mm-hmm. high pedestal, and even mm. the way some parents speak to their girl child—you um, mm-hmm. know—the girl child gets chores. The boy is just supposed to go and be a boy and play outside. Um, so, this, exactly. so this, I can name a few countries mm. where a girl's life doesn't matter. It
1: doesn't. Yeah. yeah.
0: So now, last year you photographed 12 women and dressed them up as historical female (laughs) figures. What kind of feedback did you get from that exhibition?
1: That was an amazing experience. It was a very taxing experience Uh, because normally every year I do conferences, and I did a gender side conference actually in 2014 um, to raise awareness on the issue. And then last year I had the sense that women in history – we need to open that narrative. Man, that's where I start getting excited because that's obviously where my books are at. I'm writing about historical figures. And so I think that if we can see ourselves as represented in history, we will know there's a place for us. And I experienced that as a, as a teen. And so last year I just had this idea, take these 13 women's stories from history and take 13 women that I was drawn to. It was people that I knew it wasn't models or anything and connect them. And we got the outfits and we did this amazing month long exhibition and each woman, you know, they had two actual pictures that were up. So there was 26 pictures and we did a month long exhibition where women came through the exhibition and some men, but they were a little bit more hesitant. And we, we taught them about the fact that women's history Matters, and the world 's first computer programmer was a woman. We need to know her story. I have the computer today because she did it. Are you talking about hidden figures because it was based on that, I think yeah, hidden figures was the one with the astronauts with Katherine Johnson yes, yes. and that again how how dramatically You know, how much of a dramatic impact has that film had on us since it came out? I I say
0: every 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 mother who has a child, any auntie who has a niece, they need to make sure they sit down and watch that movie with, with a girl child.
1: That's it. And we know about someone, example, like William Wilberforce. A lot of people know about him because he was key in abolishing slavery in Britain at his time. And he was the one that knew that slavery had to go, what was happening. And we know William Wilberforce, there is a movie called Amazing Grace that you can watch about his life and how, how great he was. But his counterpart was Hannah Moore. And William Wilberforce himself said that he, he wouldn't have been able to do what he did without Hannah Moore. And so she was this anti-slavery abolitionist and she funded him and she was there. Um, She she was part of my exhibition last year as well. So that's why I'm so passionate about her. She started schools for educating girls at a time it didn't happen. So I wanted people to know and the response was phenomenal. We had schoolgirls as well that came and we gave them cards with photos on. They could choose which woman they felt connected to and to see that shift to go, when you see yourself something about yourself and you see it back to you whereas... There's a shift that comes, and that's what we do with history. It teaches us identity and and representation. It encourages us to be ourselves, and that's what I wanted to do with it last year, and what I still want to do in the future. And my TED talk was on the fact that history needs to be changed, and that we need female history to be told. We need to tell the her stories. Absolutely, I love that, Lauren.
0: Thank you so much for empowering us as women and for encouraging us to believe in our stories, abilities, and strengths. Mm, It's been so wonderful to be with you.
1: You are awesome. Thank (laughs) Thank you. I'll I'll, I'll take that compliment. (laughs) Now I'm
0: blushing. My humble opinion. After all, this is the Opinion Booth. And this is based on something I posted on Twitter early on this year. It reads, none of this would happen under female leadership. Hashtag Trump. Hashtag Kim Jong Un. Hashtag small penis syndrome. Hashtag my missile is bigger than yours. Aspire to inspire before you expire. This
1: is CliffCentral.com